Welcome to Your Money Story. I'm Dawn Thomas, a mother of three, financial advisor by day, and a PhD candidate studying the experience of Generation Z with the superannuation system. This podcast provides a platform for stories that are underrepresented. Everyone's money story is unique. My guests are people who conduct their lives with purpose, authenticity, and are not afraid of being different. They stand out within their industries for being themselves. I hope their journeys inspire you to harness your own gifts and talents. I'm a believer of living your truth each day. Let's change how the story ends. We acknowledge the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation as the traditional custodians of this country and its waters and where this podcast is recorded on, stands on Noongar country. We pay our respects to Noongar elders, past and present, and acknowledge their wisdom and advice. The information discussed in this podcast does not take into account your personal and financial objectives and situation. Before acting on any information discussed here, you should consider its appropriateness, having regard to your objectives, needs, and financial situation. This episode, I speak to Sarah Jones, Principal of Illuminate Law. Sarah is passionate about family law and helping people through one of the most vulnerable points in their life, divorce. She feels disputes are often about a breakdown in communication. She has seen growing up that creativity can make frugality an ingenious endeavour. As a family lawyer, she has tips on how people can navigate relationship breakdowns better and outlines the minimum knowledge you should have about your partner before you get into a long-term relationship. She sees divorce as the end of one aspect to a relationship. However, when children are involved, she feels that people should see it as a new relationship because successful co-parenting requires communication and respect. And sometimes she has to deliver the cold hard truth that how a client wants to live financially after divorce may not be possible. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us on today's podcast. You're part of season two. How very exciting that you get to be here with us. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited. This is going to be a new experience for me. So keen to get into it. Oh, well, I, I must say that our listeners in our community are a very warm bunch and I'm sure they'll connect to you uh, after this as well on LinkedIn um, to, to give you that sense of welcoming into the Your Money Story community. Um, Sarah, I'm going to just jump right in because that's what you said. You just want to get it going. Yeah. What, what do you think your, has really shaped the way that you view money and, and how you've kind of gravitated towards the career that you have right now? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually, because my my mum is quite a quite a person. She's had quite a life, and she effectively raised four children mostly mm-hmm. on her own, um, and supported us financially. Um, my dad was busy doing other things, um, mm-hmm. getting remarried, sailing a yacht, uh, discovering himself, that sort of thing. Yeah, but. But I think my mum ran her own business for many years, actually. She bought a supermarket in a small country town, which is a hell of a thing to take on, Um, and she ran it for about eight years when I was sort of in my early teens and and through high school and into uni. And she just worked her guts out effectively but really taught me the value of being frugal (laughs) because and and, uh, but also how that can lead to creativity right so if you don't have money you've still got other resources that you can draw on I mean she used to you know it was a small small country um 
uh, supermarket, you know, if we had veggies that were, you know, had a piece that might not be the freshest, you know, we would chop them all up and turn them into a stir fry pack and sell it at a markup and people loved them. They all used to request <laughs> that we would make them. <laughs> Um, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the soft bananas would get turned into banana bread overnight and then sold in the store the next day, you know, that yep. sort of thing. Like she, um, we never had a lot of money to go around, but it meant that I could, you know, you could really see that it didn't necessarily mean that you couldn't survive and thrive, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the business ended up, you know, serving the purpose that she got it for in the first place, which was to be able to afford to raise us, send us to private schools and set us up for the lives that we now have. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's so fascinating. Like your mum obviously is just this this warrior woman for being able to to do that. Uh, And the funny thing is, is that probably if you describe her that way, um, she may not necessarily acknowledge the strength she's had to to do all of that for you and your siblings um yeah, it's just not a journey yeah. right like you're you're saying even the bits of how do you make the most of the situation um being able to pivot where you go okay this may not be sold this way but we're gonna sold this it this way you know instead of stir fry i mean that is ingenious like that's really like you said being creative it's not just being frugal right it's being able to make the most of the situation yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we all worked in the supermarket ourselves as, um, you know, as kids, putting yeah. them before in the days before you had scanners, putting the little price tags on all the <laughs> yeah, all the products. All our money stories are very, uh, I mean, they, they do shape us, you know. So how is that then translated to your working life, right? So you you are in family law, but you've you've done you've had a bit of journey even within your career. I mean, how has that shaped that? Yeah, I think it was it was it's probably come into play a lot more in starting my own business because hmm. I think in lots of professions, especially more traditional ones like law, there's this view that um, there's a certain way you have to do things, um, and that you need a fancy office and you need this you need a secretary and and you know all of these kind of um, additional things and I did not have the financial resources to do that when I started when I decided to go out on my own Um, I'd worked in a big firm for six six odd years um, but you know it wasn't like I had money to invest in 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 fancy premises and you know um, stationery and all of that sort of thing but I kind of thought, well, I actually don't need to do it that way. I can actually do it do it differently. And it doesn't need to necessarily cost me a lot of money to be effective. Um, you know, I started, when I started my practice, I was work, um, I was working out of a co-working space. Mm. And if the meeting rooms there, clients would come in and meet with them there. Um, I was basically virtual. I had an off, um, off-site telephone answering service. I did all my secretarial stuff myself to start <laughs> with, you know, and, and just sort of it started from zero, basically. I didn't, uh, we hardly invested anything in setting up the business. It didn't cost us a lot for me to get started um, and then I've been able to kind of build that from there. So I think, you know, that idea that you don't have to um, necessarily do it the same way everybody else has done and that you can use what resources you have and still mm. um, do something worthwhile was really important in setting setting myself up for my own practice. So, in, and that's the thing about business owning and, and I've spoken spoken to some accountants who, who who like to encourage people to set up their own business, right? And sometimes they, sit, they encounter women who feel that it's too much of risk-taking. But at the same time, I meet women in business who are just like, no, I'm 
I'm just going to do it, you know. So for you, was that driver the fact that you really needed to do things your own way? Um, I mean, what what was really that point where you went, the only way I can do this is setting up business, my own business? I think there was two, there was two main drivers for me. So one was professional, one was personal, really. Because from a professional standpoint, I was getting to the point in my career where I think you do at some point feel a drive to kind of invest in in growing something, right? So you're not just a worker be doing a job. When you're a professional and you take pride in the work that you do, you want people to value that work. You want to build up, um, I guess, uh, you know, a recognition around that. And when you work in a firm for somebody else, effectively you're putting that heart and soul labour into growing somebody else's business at the end Mm. of the day Um, and into improving their um, reputation and improving the quality of the work that they are then seen as as delivering. And um, you as an individual don't necessarily get get to be part of that. Um, And, I mean, obviously that depends on the business you're working in, what the structures are, but I didn't see that opportunity for me in the practice that I was working in, you know, to really have my own stamp on it. Um, which is what I really wanted. Um, And family law in Perth, it's not a huge industry. You know, I could see other firms, there were other places to work, but um, not not where I could do things exactly the way that I wanted to do them. Mm. So that was kind of the professional driver in terms of my, what I wanted out of my work. And then the personal side of it was I have two small children. They're five and three um, and they were, you know, one and, and three when I, um, when I decided to make the move and, you know, staring down the barrel of those early years of, of parenthood, the, um, I mean, even just the last couple of weeks, we've had medical appointments, we've had um, concerts, we've had Christmas yes. parties, we've had, you know, and, and all of the flexibility that you need to be able to meet all of those demands from the mm. personal side of, of life. I just couldn't see that in a firm where, you know, I was required to put in a certain number of billable hours every week. Um, you know, I had to be in the office, you know, um, for, for the business hours that they were open in order to supervise other people. You know, the structure around working hours and how work got done wasn't really going to work for me and what I wanted to be able to give in my personal life. So, mm. you know, I kind of looked around and looked at the options and thought, oh, well, I guess I've just got to make it happen for myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I did. You did. I and and that's I think that's very inspiring. Um, for 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 anyone listening who's actually thinking of doing it, I think you know there's some people who just go out and do it. And I think that background that you're talking about of being really smart in the way that you can make the most of your situation has set you up really well. It seems to be that is that experience that you've you've had. Um, so you are multi-skilled, you know, not just in being a lawyer, but being able to fill in all the other gaps that might be needed in a business. Um, mm. So of course, you're this, this amazing business owner who is in family law. Why, why family law? Family law, it's funny because I always said as a teenager, I thought I wanted to do law, you know, I always thought I was pretty good at debating and, and all of the things that you think are going to make you a good lawyer when you're in high school. And I thought I might like to do law, but I thought, oh, no, no way family law. My parents are divorced, horrible. Why would anybody want to do that? You know, just all that drama. And and the, the, the realisation came to me over time that... A lot of law is effectively what I would call transactional, right? So mm. it's about moving an asset or some money from one place to another or fighting over an asset, you know, between two people and it's going to move one way or the other. 
um, or you're looking at a tax issue and you're looking at how can I stop money moving from the client mm-hmm. to the ATO. And what I really wanted to do was work with people about their human problems more yeah. than more than that sort of commercial transactional stuff. And I did some, you know, work experience and insurance and things like that that just didn't really grab me. Mm. But what does grab me is the human stories, right? So when you work in family law, you're you're dealing with people's most intimate um, yes. problems effectively. And I don't just mean that about um, parenting stuff. Obviously, that's, that's, that's intimate, but also their personal finances, right? That's a really intimate Thing to be having to um, to talk to people about the way that they've run their lives up until the point of separation and then you're trying to help them work out how they run their lives beyond mm. that. Um, I just don't think that there's another area of law that sort of allows you to touch people's lives in that really um, personal way and I think that that's probably why I ended up being drawn to family law mm. um, because it's about people more than anything yeah. else and I think as well like like as financial advisors we have a checklist right we call it a vulnerable client checklist and one of the events that we would consider putting a client that's vulnerable is when they're actually going through a divorce um, yeah. and for you it's I mean for us we are we we have to to prove how we're, we're taking caution with this client and how they're being supported to be able to make decisions but you're right deep in it because really the point at which you're seeing someone could be one of the most vulnerable moments in their life I mean how do you deal with that, um, I mean, as your profession day in, day out, how do you deal with taking on somebody's, you know, emotional uh, load, I suppose, and, and trying to help them navigate that? Yeah, I think different lawyers have different, um, I guess, approaches to this this problem effectively of we're professional advisors, but also dealing with extremely personal issues, right? So we have a role which is not to uh, you know, we're not there to hold the client's hand, is, mm-hmm. is often the phrase the phrase that that gets used, you know, we're not there to hold their hand. We're there to provide them with our professional opinion on an issue that they're facing and then the client has to go and, uh, you know, use that advice as they see fit. But so that's sort of one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum is that, you know, we're uh, we're there as a supportive person, you know, who's a part of a a network of people who should be supporting Mm. this person during this time. I probably land somewhere in the middle, which is that, Yes, I have a professional role, right? So my my role is to understand the law, be able to explain it to the clients and give them all the information necessary so they can make their own decision. But I also have a role in making sure that when they make that decision, they are making it freely and in a full understanding of their Mm. situation. And doing that part isn't necessarily a piece of legal work. Uh, purely, yes. you know, it's it's a matter of um, understanding where your client is at emotionally. And I sometimes have situations where I say to a client, okay, I've told you all of this, but I don't want you to be making that decision now. I want you to go away. I want you to think about it. I want to talk to the people that you, you know, trust, you know, people that mm-hmm. are supporting you. Come back to me in three days or five days about this question because people need time to process, right, sometimes. Yes. And that's where I think that's not a that's not a legal issue, right? That's that's not a question of law, but that's just a question of working with people who are at that stage where they they can be vulnerable, right? Yes. Where their decision making ability can be impaired by nothing to do with mm. you, but you need to be aware of it in order to make sure that you are acting in your client's best interest. Yeah, and and it sounds like I mean I guess that's what drives you, and and I guess like I said, that's what really connected me to you as well. I can see that. Um, 
I very much uh, like that idea of really being in somebody's corner and, and, and seeing other specialists who are doing that as well. So it's very interesting to see how people apply that in different professions. But Sarah, mm. you shared with me that sometimes you've got to deliver the core heart truth to someone. Like they might be going, oh, I've got the family home. So that's happened the settlement. I mean, all of that is there. And it's, I'm going to live in there forever. But then you can see like financially, they may not be able to to fund a lifestyle, you know? So how, how do you deliver that cool heart truth <laughs> to the clients? Mm-hmm. Or how do you deal with that to get them from that stage of, of having to rebuild? Yeah, often people come into my office with a kind of a fixed idea of what they should get mm-hmm. or what they might be entitled to or uh, what would be fair. And the law doesn't always take the same view, mm. <laughs> you know. So I have the, the job of having to explain to people that, well, okay, you might feel like that is what is fair, but that's not necessarily how another person is going to view it. And um, I think that conversation, it's just hard no matter what, right? There's no, uh, no necessarily easy way to do it. I think where their expectations are unrealistic there's two parts to it. One is explaining to them that the law isn't going to support that that position. So mm-hmm. you might believe that, but I'm never going to be able to convince the court to believe that. Okay. So we yeah. need to come up yeah. with other solutions, right? We need to come up with other solutions. The other part of it is sometimes the, the issue is not so much a, a legal issue, but a practical one. So for example, um, you know, a mum who, who works part-time two days a week, um, she thinks she's going to take on a mortgage of, of half a million dollars. Yeah. Uh, solo and that's just not going to happen Mm. (laughs) Um, you know she's not going to find a a broker who will find her a a lender and so in those circumstances I need somebody else to come in and give her that advice so I say Mm. well look if you want to keep the house you need to talk to somebody about how that might work you know can you actually borrow that that much and actually send them to talk to somebody who can give them that dollars and cents um, practical approach to the problem Mm. because that's kind of the limit of where my role ends and other people's roles begin. So, I mean, how how receptive are they to that, Sarah? Because, again, I think that's like you deal with people in that state um, where they're going through something really emotional. But sometimes we find that when, when we meet someone who's not ready to make decisions because they're almost burying their head in the sand or they just don't want to deal or they've got, you know, having to deal with the kids, for example, because it's also hard on the rest of the family members. I guess it's it's from your point of trying to hand them on to other specialists and move them forward. I mean, how, how do you get them to just think of it that way that they need to look past what they're feeling right now because they need to start putting in those steps? Yeah, I think there's, there's two, two things about that. One is that if you can buy your clients some time, that can be a good actually a good thing for the outcome altogether because when people feel cornered into making decisions, then it's not going not generally going to lead to the best outcome so sometimes you know you might have one party who is really pushing for the matter to be dealt with straight away and for everything to be sort of tied up we need to separate our finances and we need to do that but if you take a step back it's actually not that necessary to take sort of immediate decisions Mm. and 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 sometimes just buying your client a bit of time by being able to to slow down the other party and say, okay, well, yes, we do need to deal with the property settlement. We, we are going to need to sort of unravel those joint finances, mm. but it doesn't need to be this week. You know, yeah. it doesn't need to be right now necessarily. And if you can buy your clients some time, that can actually really help with then when they are ready, the, the resolution can go a lot quicker. 
if you can't, right, there are things that are just going to have to be dealt with, then from my perspective as the lawyer in that seat, I have to be able to step back and say, I can see that emotionally you might not be ready, but I'm not the person to help you with get, getting your emotional life sorted. That's mm-hmm. I can't do that. I'm not the person for that. But giving them some other tools that might help them um, to kind of manage that decision-making if they are being forced into doing it. Okay, yeah. So like, time, you're right. So time, time can help them just yeah. maybe... Um, get into that state where they can make at least some decisions, maybe if not all. Because you, you deal with with divorce, you've probably seen a whole spectrum of how things can go. Um, like we say, you've mm-hmm. seen the good, the bad, the ugly. Mm-hmm. When it goes well, how how does that look like versus when it's when it doesn't go well? You know, so I mean because ideally if the rate, the divorce rate is high in Australia, if someone is going down that pathway, you know, what can they if I suppose everyone wants to go for a good outcome rather than a, a an un, a, yeah a bad one. <laughs> yeah, I mean nobody wants to get divorced, right? Yes. Was yeah. Nobody ever wants to be talking to me or coming to see me in my <laughs> office, really. Yeah. Um. Uh. It's not it's not a place that anybody wants to end up. I think the people who I guess do divorce better. Yeah. Are the ones who prepare for divorce effectively as not the end of the relationship but a change in the way you're going to relate to this person because Mm. the fact is you're still, especially where there are children, right, especially where there are kids involved, it's not the end of your relationship. Parenting is still forever. So um, you might not be married to them anymore but you are still a co-parent with them and if you treat it like the start of a new relationship, as in we need to get to know one another in this new context, then that's going to give you the best chance of doing things well, you know, amicably, staying respectful, all of that stuff, Mm. right? Um, Where I see that it doesn't work out well is where there's no, that communication and respect is just not there, right? It's been lost and damaged by whatever has happened during the relationship generally Mm. and um, they're not able to set all of that aside in order to create some new way of relating to each other. Probably it's it's something for all of us to keep in mind as well is that if you've got the presence of mind to go, okay, we're we're changing the way the relationship works. So probably let's work together to get a good outcome together. Then everybody sort of wins in that scenario. Yeah. Um, and I think at the end of the day, people's even if you look at the separation of finances between two people who are separating, right? It's actually at the end of the day ought to be a joint exercise, right? You're making mm. joint, you're making decisions about things that affect both of you. So ideally, you should be working together to make those decisions work as best they can for both of you. And I mean, there are also, I think a lot of people don't realise this. Um, people call me as a family lawyer because they think, oh, I'm separating, I need to get a lawyer. But that's not necessarily always the case. There's so many resources out there these days for. Um, couples who want to try and do things amicably Mm. that doesn't involve um, a fight it doesn't involve litigation half the time it doesn't even involve lawyers so uh, there's no need for people to go down this kind of argument pathway um, when you're separating Um, there's lots of other ways to do it oh that's that's good to hear Sarah because I think maybe we hear more about the stories when they end up quite. Oh yeah, you're always going to hear the disaster story. <laughs> the disa- yeah, you know, everyone wants to tell at the Christmas party what a you know <laughs> terrible person their ex ex 
whatever spouse is. Yeah. It's like uh, those are the kinds of stories that get told. Nobody wants to hear the story about how well you get on with your wife yeah. and you know how you still go to all of the um, school assemblies together and you have family dinner on a Thursday night. Nobody wants yeah. to hear that story. Because that would be like a Gwyneth Paltrow move, you know, the conscious uncoupling. (laughs) I don't think she was very popular for being so positive about that. Um, So, you know, sometimes as well, we come across clients that um, I think they're in the phase of wanting to go through um, a divorce. They're in the separation phase. And now it might be three or four years since they've hit that. But let's say it coincides with the fact that um, they can't sell a business. If the asset is the family home, and but they have a business that's losing money, for example. I mean, what what really are the options for a couple in that scenario? Do they just wait indefinitely till a business can be turned around if it can? Or, I mean, what are some of the factors that allow you know a divorce to be finalized or, or drag on indefinitely? Yeah, I th- I think there's. <laughs> Those sorts of situations can be really tricky for for more than more than one reason, right? So yeah. if you have a situation where the the sort of family finances are in a in a state of flux or uncertainty, that can be really problematic because often in that scenario, there's one spouse who isn't actively involved in the family finances. And so the spouse who's there trying to run a business, trying to create money for the family, trying to, you know, get money in the door, feels like they're working really hard. And then you've got the other spouse who feels like they're on the outer and they don't understand what, you know, we had all this money when we were together and now you're telling me that it's all gone terribly wrong and, and then all of a sudden there's no money. Mm. And, then, and then it just breeds this lack of trust and then people get involved in litigation and then there becomes just um, this escalating conflict between the parties, yeah. which actually yeah. only adds to the overall stress of that unit, right? Yes, yes. Um, and it isn't going to resolve the matter altogether. So... I think one really important thing for people who might be facing that sort of situation where they go and and look, they do often go hand in hand, right? Marriage falling apart, business falling apart. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. You know, um, the important thing from my perspective that helps avoid the spousal dispute escalating is is openness and honesty and information sharing. So the more each spouse understands about the financial situation, the less likely you are to have disputes on that end. And that means that you can potentially come to agreements on things like, okay, I understand you're working as hard as you can in the business and now is not the right time to sell it. So I'm willing to wait for another 18 months to see if things can turn around, you know, and so you can actually try to work out an agreement that works for everybody yeah. in the end. You're never going to get that kind of agreement if the other spouse doesn't actually believe that there is a financial problem um, yes. inside that business. So that's where the information sharing, the communication yeah. is going to be the key to finding a solution to that problem. Oh, that is, I mean, you're right. It's, it's coming back to communication and it sounds like you're trying to mediate through that point of just making sure that, you know, people can be on the same page. Yeah, you're not taking sides. that's the main yeah. problem. When people walk into my office, it's not that there's actually, they actually need to be having a dispute. It's just that somebody doesn't understand, hasn't mm-hmm. been given enough information, doesn't have a clear picture of things. And then 
Conversely, you can have the other person who says, well, why do I need to tell her about what I'm doing? Why does she need to know about the car that I just bought? And, and you know, uh, why yeah, should I have yeah. to tell her everything? Because we're not together anymore. But the fact is that until your finances are untangled in that final sense, you do have to share that information. That is going to be part of the uncoupling. Yes. Right. <laughs> is continuing actually to communicate or at least provide information to that person so that decisions can be made jointly about how to. But you said people don't plan to get divorced and then when it happens, they're sort of maybe in an emotional charged phase and they they can't really, um, it's kind of hard to stay level-headed, I think, for anyone. I think if we're bringing it back to talking to our kids about relationships and expectations, I mean, what kind of conversations would you have to your kids about what they should be realistically expecting from relationships and what they can do to also protect themselves. Uh, I've, I've said these words a few times already because it's yeah. becoming a bit of a theme in this discussion, which is yeah. you know, these two prongs of respect and communication, right? Yeah. Um, and people might put trust on there as well, but I think trust comes from respect and communication. Um, and if you don't have those things in your relationship, then that's where I, I see most of the problems okay. arising. And the and then that, that's the thing. Even if you know we no longer expect marriages to last forever, if you've got respect and communication, that marriage can still transform into something else. It can transform into a co-parenting relationship. It can transform into a friendship if yeah. you still have those two things, right? Oh, but without yeah. those two things, what you're not yeah. really got. You don't really have a, a relationship that you can build on. Um, and I mean, when I say respect and communication, I, I really do mean that sharing of information that you know about the other person's life and they know about yours, right? Um, one of the big things that I see a lot um, coming into my office is in particular women, not always, but usually, who haven't had any active involvement in the family's finances throughout the marriage. And then the marriage is ending and they don't really have any understanding of how the money is made, where it gets spent, mm. what, how much things cost even necessarily yes. because they haven't had to and that's been sort of the division of labour, which is fine. But from my perspective, one of the best things that you can do to protect yourself is actually understand, even if you're not making the money, understand where it comes from and where it goes to you know I see wives who sign things like tax returns where they're getting nominal income and all sorts of things um and they just sign them and from my perspective the best thing you can do don't sign anything you don't understand you know yes you trust your spouse but if a professional gives you a piece of paper say to them Explain this to me like I'm five. Tell me what yeah. this tax return actually means mm-hmm. um, because that's the best thing that you can have is an understanding of your own position because it's not just your spouse who's in, who's in charge of this um, financial relationship. You're in charge of it too. And I think one of the things that I disagree with with a lot of the relationships is when that financial responsibility gets carved off to one person Yes, um, because that's a big problem when, when couples separate. So that, and we're in agreement with that. I think from a financial planning point of view, we definitely want mm. most, well, both parties in there. But I think in a traditional sense, we see that as well. There, there can be one that's more domineering. And I think what we've been encouraged as a profession is going, it's not good enough <laughs> to go by the easier path and go to the one that's engaged. We're supposed to be able to have the professionalism to, to deal with someone who is disengaged and get them engaged. Mm. I mean, that's part of the process that, that, 
you know, you you need to pull them in because we know where it can go wrong uh, if someone is uh, disengaged. So, um, you know, I think I I I can really uh, I can see where you're coming from with that, and to see that coming from a lawyer's perspective, um, I mean, it just shows you that it's a common theme, right? Like we all see it. We're going you. You need to take. Yeah. You need to know what's happening, because at, at some point you might have to be looking after it yourself. So yeah, yeah and, and, and and not necessarily just yeah. because of divorce, right? Other things can happen. Right. You know, illness, yes. disability, illness. it can all happen. Yeah, and you guys are in the position where you can actually get in front of that, right? Yeah, and you're advising, so you can you can start that education process early in the piece. Um, I'm often dealing with it at the other end when yeah. it's already gone wrong. Um, and I, I'm then in a position of having to try and, and educate the, the yeah. wife about yeah. why she can't afford the BMW anymore, you know. Yes. Um, how did this happen, you know. <laughs> and if they had a bit of knowledge before walking into my office, it would certainly help my job. So thank you for helping make my job easier. Oh, no, we're, we're working on it. I, sorry, I can only say it's a work in progress because, um, you know, it's it's I think advisors or advising is changing where we're trying to pull in both of the couples. It's always been um, something that I focused on and a number of advisors that I know as well focus on that going, we need to bring in both members of a couple because it's a joint, but also you'll be surprised where you have clients just saying, no, no, we don't need to know all the details. We trust you. I'm like, no, no, it's nice. You trust us, but you really need to know for your own sake, because these are important decisions. And if we're not giving you enough information to feel confident about making that decision, you've got to tell us, I think that same message where you're going, Tell me in the simplest form. I mean, there's no shame in that, you know, because it's really up to the person communicating. They're the professionals. They're supposed to know how to tell it to you in a way that that you can digest it. It's a fantastic message, I think, uh, to put out there. It's just about being able to know your own money story, right? Because you're the one really who's the narrator in that, in being able to determine how that unfolds. What money tips do you have for our listeners? So your perspective um, as a family lawyer, you know, as a business person, even from your seeing what you've you've seen growing up, what are the three most important things you think um, you would like to impart as, as money tips? I'm trying to decide how cynical I ought to be in giving the, <laughs> the advice because the, the family lawyer and the cynic in me yeah. has, has some very specific advice around Everybody should always have access to some of their own money. So that that to me as a family lawyer mm. is so important for the situation if anything ever goes wrong, right, yes. that you have access to at least some of your own money. Mm. Um, and I think that that's probably a, a message that... Um, that a lot of people who work in the family law space would agree with. Um, when you're in a couple, you know, it's very easy to say, well, I trust them, you know, I, uh, you know, we don't hide anything from yeah. each other. And, and that's not what it's about. From my perspective, there should be an agreement that each person has access to some of their, some money of their own. That's theirs. Yeah. Um, regardless of who earns it, regardless of how it gets there, everybody should be able to have some access to money because, that gives you this feeling of security, right? I mean, you want to be in a relationship, but you also want to be able to know that you could leave if you needed to. Yes. Um, and that's nothing against the person you're in the relationship with. I have my own money. Sorry, Steve, yes. my husband. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not that, I'm not planning on leaving him, but the point is that I could choose to if I needed to. And yes. everybody should have that, have mm. that freedom um, because we don't consider 
marriage to be, you know, an inalienable contract these days, right? Yes. You don't you don't have to just put up with it for the sake of it. So that's probably one, I guess, a little bit cynical um, tip. I, I don't think it's <laughs> cynical from, at from all. my family lawyer perspective. Yeah. Um, but I think also one of the big things that I've learned through the 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 journey of sort of starting my own business and doing that and having a family and, and doing all the things that I do is that your money goals need to be um, need to be linked to the other stuff in your life as well, right? So, um, I mean, I started this business. I still work uh, mostly on my own. I have admin now who mm-hmm. does my secretarial stuff, but I'm still the only lawyer in my practice and, you know, I get a lot of questions about, oh, when am I going to grow? When am I going to, you know, um, bring on another solicitor? When am I going to, you know, increase the, those um, that billable income? And the answer to that is, well, now's not the right moment for me because I love the flexibility that I have. I'm earning what I what I set out to earn. You know, what my goal was for my personal income, and so you know, that goal, that financial goal meets my other goals in life, which is to be able to go to my kids', you know, school dance concert and Mm -hmm. the Christmas party at the daycare and um, take the morning off to go to hearing tests for my son. And, you you know, so so your financial goals, you know, you don't always need to be trying to be the best at everything or earn the most money as long as it's meeting your goals, you know, what you want out of life. And that's probably a big thing that, for me personally, I've learned over the last few years. The fact is that you're 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 saying as well, just listen to yourself, you know. So I mean the, the first tip that you have is about just making sure that you're backing yourself by having some amount of independence. And the second tip is um, you know, you you can't compare yourself with what someone else is doing because you're on a very personal journey that you're on, even with business. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's even when you're developing business, um, you know, for yourself is make sure it's aligning to your own personal goals, not someone else's. Because I think you're Mm. the only one that really knows what you're trying to achieve for you and your family. Um, And I think it's really good as well for our listeners who who are parents, uh, because you kind of wonder how does that all work? Because it's a pressure of, you know, do you have to expand? Do you have to be bigger than Ben Hur, you know, like how, how big do you have to go? And then <laughs> are you a successful business person um, if you don't? But yeah, it's. Yeah. And I think there's a big pressure around, you know, when you start your own business that you have to be a success yeah. and then that very sort of strictly defined version of what success <laughs> is, which means yeah. you have to always be, always be growing, right? Yeah. Always increasing that bottom line. And I kind of reached, you know, the point where I was happy with how my business was going, um, you know, my second year in. And I just thought, actually, you know what? I'm happy. I'm happy with how this is now. Um, yeah. This is exactly what suits me right now. Yeah. And that's going to be, that's okay. Like, oh, I, that, that message is fantastic. I think it's fantastic for, to just show the, the, the diversity um, of experiences that exist within the business world. Because we hear a lot about really big businesses and, and aggressive growth and, you know, like this and that. But to oh, be yeah, able to get yeah. their revenue in six months and all, yeah, yeah. And and, and I get a lot of yeah. those stories from my feed too, yeah. which, is, which is great for them. Yeah. Um, but I don't think your goals need to be everybody else's. Exactly, either. yeah. And I think that might have been a barrier as well for people going into business because they think that it's this one idea that they can't do. But you're kind of showing that, um, 
it, it, it's really what you want to achieve and you need to be comfortable with that. As, as long as you're comfortable with that and achieving your own goals, it works. Um, so no, thank you for that, Sarah. I mean, did, did you want to, I mean, you've got lots of pearls of wisdom here. You're like on Oprah level kind of wisdom. So I'm, I'm <laughs> really enjoying it. Do, do you want to throw a third one in there? Or how, how do you, even Ooh. from a business, a business owner's kind of, of tip or a family law tip that you have? One of the things about starting my own business was that I didn't set up my law practice the same way as most other lawyers. So most anybody who's dealt with a lawyer is probably familiar with the idea of the billable hour, mm. uh, which is, which is you know, we charge for our time effectively, lawyers. So however long we spend reading that email that you sent us is, is what you get charged for on the bill the next yeah. uh, month. And I hated billable hours when I was in practice. I hate having to record every six minutes what I'm doing. And also I found that a lot of the time it didn't reflect value to the the clients, you know. Um, Reading that email for six minutes, what did that add to the client? What what was that giving them? Nothing. Um, It wasn't a good way of reflecting sort of value. And so I don't do billable hours in my practice. I also don't run a trust account, which is when lawyers ask you for money up front before they even do any work. They, They make you put the money in the bank don't make my clients do that either and lots of people told me that was a mistake you know that oh it was going to be terrible and you know um, how are you ever going to get anybody to pay you and all of this stuff and I think I've had about three debtors in my entire practice since I started because people know exactly what I'm going to charge them yes and there's no surprises when I bill them and they just pay it because I I just don't have any disputes yeah so I think that really and, and it was scary to do that, right? Because everybody's like, oh, it's so risky, you know, blah, blah. And, um, and it was so scary, but I did it. And I just committed to the idea and, I, and, I've, and I've just gone with it. And I think it kind of shows that you don't need to necessarily do what everybody else is doing. You know, you don't necessarily, and it doesn't need to be perfect either. Because the other thing that I learned was I had to, I had to tweak my systems quite a bit to get it right mm. when I yes. first started. That first six months, trying to figure out what my agreements were going to be and how would I actually bill people and, and all of that stuff and how, how would I set my prices. It was, it was, you know, trial and error for a bit, but don't let that put you off. You know, if, if you're doing something new, yeah, you're going to have to learn as you go, but it can be worth it at the end of the day. Lesson from that is that you don't need to do, set things up the way everybody else has set things up. You know, there there are there is so much innovation happening, and particularly this is probably more, you know, what I'm familiar with is in the legal space. There's lots of this new, you know, people are looking for different ways to, to do things, right? Um, and, you know, don't be afraid of exploring that stuff um, because it's helped me to build a business that I actually enjoy working mm. in where I don't have to record seven hours of my time every day as to every you know email that I answered or phone call that I took. And I, I love it. Like you can, you can do better than, than what's come before you. Mm. Um, you don't need to be sort of bound by the way things have been. Oh, thank you for that, Sarah. It's been so enjoyable talking to you and, and getting to know how you wrap yourself around clients and this very human aspect of life that I think a number of people can find themselves in and, and how you help navigate them through it. Um, I, I'm just going to throw one last question. I just have to sneak in one last question. Sure. Uh, Prenuptial agreements or financial agreements. Mm. Um, you know, you talked about cynical tip, which I didn't think was a cynical tip at all. But but really, should we 
should we be doing them? You know, so before we say I do, um, I mean, how do you feel about a prenup? So in terms of the way that the law works in Australia Mm. at the moment around these agreements, my view of them is that generally speaking, unless you have significant assets and particularly if you're coming to a relationship later in life where you've had a lot of opportunity to build up those things yourself um, separate from your partner, in those sorts of situations they can be worthwhile and useful. But for the more general population, I guess, you know, you've been together since your mid-20s, you're, you know, you're 30, you're going to get married and have kids, sort of you've built up some professional experience together and you might be starting to, you know, buy a house or do whatever. That sort of situation, it's not worth it's not worth a financial agreement okay. um, in that formal sense. What it is worth doing is actually having a discussion with your partner about your family finances. Yes, right? How are they going to work? And whenever those family finances change, have that discussion again. Um, So I think sort of formal, you know, legally binding agreements and not for everybody, I think they have a role where there's more complexity or there's later in life, previous relationships, previous children, especially Mm -hmm. those sorts of of situations. But for sort of your run-of-the-mill, we love each other, we're getting married, we're we're, (laughs) young and carefree, you probably don't need that level of um, of documentation, but what you should be doing is having a discussion, right? And that's what yes. binding financial agreements, which is what they're called in Australia, can be good for is it forces you to have a discussion about, well, what if? What happens if? If, if something gets thrown within our sphere as, uh, as well, as going, is it necessary, is it not? Do we, do we position it uh, with people? But also it's not really part of our everyday relationship discussions. I must say for most relationships, it's not something that they talk about. But I think what you're seeing um, is that distinction of going, if you've built up well separately or you, there's a lot of assets at play or you know um, things like that, it, it can be suitable. But for mm. everyone else, that preventative step really is is that communication piece and, and understanding and transparency. So know, know what you have, have open discussions. Um, and then whether or not you see together with your partner, yeah, um, don't wait until you're married to find out that your husband has three credit cards and you know, $25,000 worth of personal debt. Don't wait to have that discussion. Yeah, know? have it from the start. Um, yeah, have it from the start. Um, but, you know, but you don't need a financial agreement to do that in those sorts of scenarios. Such a voice of reason, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for being so open with us and also honest about your perspective as well. To, to tell stories, we love to hear about, um, you know, other people. We're very interested. Um, yes. Some people might even say, um, you know, if you're if you if you love gossip, you'll love family law. Uh, <laughs> except for the fact that you can't actually gossip about anything that you hear in your office. Yes, so, the privacy agreements. <laughs> yeah, that's the downside. But I do love to hear uh, hear about people's stories, and it's the human. I think it's it's the human side of things that makes everything worthwhile. Uh, yeah, it comes across crystal clear, um, Sarah, that you're 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 doing this for the people, <laughs> and you've got the practical tips to just get them there. I'm telling you, I didn't see any of it as any cynicism as well. I think you're just talking about really, really practical things uh, that even a financial advisor would would flag. Uh, (laughs) Please just know what's going on. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 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 Understanding your own finances is a really key piece. (laughs) Yep. Um, So thank you so much for giving uh, your time to us on your money stories. Subscribe now to be notified of new episodes. Let's change how the story ends. Information discussed during this episode